Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Happy hump day, everyone, inside the Gamecocks podcast. J.C. Sherbert here with you. On a Wednesday, big week continues. South Carolina spring game this weekend. Weather is looking ominous. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if they're going to get it in. You know, spring games, usually when the weather is bad around the country, I've seen they just cancel them. They just don't play them. Um. I don't know how it's going to be with a new coaching staff. Uh, obviously, when that happens, there's a lot more interest in the spring game than maybe if you're in your second second or third year uh, and you can kind of, you know, get by with it. People are hungry and interested. And and that's a good thing because the tickets are going to be pretty good, uh, pretty sold um, with the 15,000 they're letting in. So we're going to monitor the weather. And see, and look, sometimes you just play football in the rain, you know? I mean, that's just how it is. (laughs) You know, they didn't cancel the Florida game a couple years ago or the Missouri game a couple years ago, unless there's lightning, uh, and that could be an issue. Uh, They don't, uh, you know, you you play football in the rain. That's the bottom line. So maybe they just go in the rain. I don't know. I would would be concerned about that just because – Somebody slips, somebody cuts the wrong way, somebody piper extends something out there in wet weather, um, you know, and, and then they're out for the season and they're a player you're counting on. You know, maybe you don't want to do that for a scrimmage, but uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, you know, and look, I, I think, too, given that it is Shane Beamer's first year and there is a desire to get it in, maybe you, you could push it to Sunday or something. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen there. Also, keep an eye on the baseball series because that's a sport you can't play in the rain, number one, Arkansas. Coming to town starting Thursday night, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday type of deal. Uh, that game Saturday obviously is in question given the forecast. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, I, I've lived in Columbia, South Carolina three times, and I can remember them calling for rain one day during a football Saturday and – at my condo in five points uh, at place on the green, it was pouring down rain. And then we got out to Williams Bryce and the sun was shining. So that's, uh, that's Columbia, South Carolina weather right there, ladies and gentlemen. So you just don't know, you don't know kind of what's going to happen. It didn't rain at the stadium that day either. And then, I mean, I I think it got cloudy for a little while, uh, but that was that. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the point there. So we'll see what happens there. Going to continue to talk. Uh, got a hard break today. Like get, while I'm recording this, I have a, uh, I guess it's about 10 o'clock Eastern time right now. I got a conference call at 11. So got to get all this in pretty quickly. So we're going to move briskly on the lo- in the, inside the Game Guys podcast today. So going to, you know, talk, we've been talking some positions, you know, talked about backup running backs or, on Monday, talked about the DBs Tuesday. Going to talk a little D-line today. Um, you know, a lot of confidence about this group. And, and when you talk to some of the new folks around the program, you know, about their impressions of the talent or whatever, the D-line is usually the first thing they talk about, uh, which is a good thing because that's not an easy position uh, to be good at. Uh, you know, South Carolina really has not been as good as they were back in the Spurrier era. 
on the defensive line in a while. I, I don't know that, you know, you predict that this time. I mean, you, you think about that 2011 team with Melvin Ingram and Jadevi and Clowney on the defensive line. Ooh, shoo. Lord have mercy. And Devin Taylor, too. Uh, those are three pros right there, and, and and two of them are really, really good. I think they've been – I think Clowney's been to a Pro Bowl, if I'm not mistaken, and Ingram's a perennial Pro Bowler. So, you know, that was a probably one of the best defensive lines in school history, if not the um, – you know, so it's hard to get back there no matter who you are. But, uh, you know, I, I think there were years in the Muschamp era where you looked at it and you thought, well, they're going to be pretty good. Uh, one – now, 2018, I felt like that D-line was undersized and that they would probably be a little more athletic than big, uh, maybe try to use their quickness, but they weren't that good. I mean, let's just let's just bottom line it here. Uh, and in 2019, you know, you had Kinlaw and Kobe Smith and, and Wanham kind of had a, a rebound year, and they were solid. You know, that that team was not very good. That defense played, you know, well at, in spurts overall. Um, not always. Uh, but, you know, that Georgia game, you, you, we all remember the Gamecocks defensive line had a pretty good pretty good day down there in Athens against a really good offensive line. Like a lot of things during that that era with Muschamp, it was sort of hit or miss and inconsistent. But uh, that, that was a good one. Uh, I think probably the best D-line they had, and they ended up playing that way, uh, if you go all the way to the Michigan game and the Outback Bowl was that 2017 group, um, you know, not a lot of future NFL guys. Ken Law was young. But, you know, you had a guy like Dante Sawyer that led the country in forced fumbles. Uh, Ulrich Jones played a, played a great part as a role player. Taylor Stallworth, who's in the NFL, obviously was a part of that D-line. Uh, you know, you had some guys that that kind of overperformed and they were a pretty solid bunch, but that was probably the best defensive line performance-wise of the Muschamp era. I don't think you say talent-wise because you know 2019 when you had Ken Law and Wanham up there, plus all a lot of the guys that they still have. You know that's a that's a talented, more talented group. They probably just didn't didn't perform as well, or they were part of a team that didn't win nine games like like 2017. So you don't really you know think about it, but. Uh, you know, you're looking right now, you know, it was really good to hear Shane Beamer talk about Zach Pickens uh, being, I think he called him unbelievable. Um, I think uh, that's kind of what people have been waiting on for Zach. I think he's been good, uh, but has he been dominant? Has he had the chance to be dominant because of what's played, been playing around him, you know, the last, you know, two years as a freshman and then, the the freshman plus year, if if you will, in 2020, you know, so Zach third year in the program, you sort of expect that jump at D tackle. Obviously everybody's excited about Jordan Birch um, who didn't really have a, a consistent off season last year to get ready to play. Uh, I still think when he did play, he flashed, uh, but he's kind of in and out of the lineup, had some injury stuff. He's ready to roll at six, six, two seventy five. I mean, that's a, that's a big guy right there um obviously Aaron Sterling and JJ Enigbare in the pass rushing department have been very very productive uh Enigbare had his best year last year it ended in an all SEC selection needs to get better against the run obviously and that's a big emphasis on for this defense is playing the run but um 
certainly in the pass rushing department, you know, he's really good. Uh, you, you talk about that other interior position and, you know, it, it'd be great if Rick Sandage could win it at six five three fifteen. But when they moved Tonka Hemingway inside, and I've said this before, uh, I thought not that it's bad news for Rick Sandage, but it kind of puts Sandage on notice because Tonka's a really talented player. And Tonka is going to go in there and, and, and play consistent and play well just because that's what he's all about. And I think he's going to adapt pretty well. And so you, you've got that there. Um, but you also have a Jabari Ellis, who's a veteran, uh, older guy who they really like, who's sort of been the leader of the group, plus Jakeem Green, uh, plus Boogie Huntley. Uh, and, you know, you can go on Nick Barrett is another guy uh, that's a true freshman that could maybe see some snaps. So so they've got a deep group. You know, I, I, I still don't think, you know, you can sit there and, and say – Oh, and I didn't even mention Jordan Strong, the transfer from Georgia State. He's up to 245. He's been hurt this spring, so you probably won't get to see him much in the spring game. Uh, but he led the country in sacks last year. So there's an edge rusher guy that um, that you still have. Uh, and, and I think that's a that's a positive thing. And you can keep going down Tyreek Johnson, Rodriguez Fit, and all those guys. So I, I think that uh, – you know, when you consider it, it's a deep group. It's still not a group, though, you know, because outside of Enigbare and Sterling and Strawn, who did it at Georgia State, you know, you do have a mix of guys that, that are that are proven producers. And, and by proven producers, I'm not talking about like proven players. Like, to me, Zach Pickens is a proven player um, just because he's played and he's been out there and he's made plays. But proven producers, like guys that get a bunch of sacks and, you know, run up some numbers and stuff like that. You do have Strawn, Sterling, and Igbare proven in that department. Uh, but but the other guys still, you know, they need to do it. And, and so that would be the concern uh, coming in is that, you know, you, you just got to do it. And uh, the talent's there. The upside is there. Uh, you just got to do it. <laughs> Sorry about the. And so that, you know, if there's a concern, it's that. Because a lot of times, you know, around here we – we look at potential and then it gets to the season and, and the potential is not realized uh, with some guys. Now, from what I've heard, everybody's working hard. They're playing well. You know, the D line's been probably one of the best positions on the team this spring. Uh, and, and so they're fired up about it. So, so we'll see sort of what happens with that. So that's the D line uh, kind of thing there. Interesting NFL draft notes. Uh, Kuiper and McShay came out with their combined mock. Gamecocks had three in the first three rounds. Uh, J.C. Horn obviously is going to go first round. I think Shai Smith was second round. And uh, Ernest Jones was was third. And I thought that was, was pretty interesting. You know, that's uh, – and and I've said before that I think that one good thing this staff did, the previous staff did, was compared to maybe some other staffs that have been through Carolina, they recruited Georgia pretty well. Um, they didn't just take anybody out of that state. They did good evaluations, and they won some battles, like for guys like Horn um, down there. And then, you know, you evaluate a guy like Ernest Jones and beat Duke on him. Um, that's a good evaluation out of that state. So – uh, hats off to them for doing that. I, I would love to see that come true just because 
man, Ernest Jones and Shy Smith kind of deserve it. I think we all knew uh, J.C. Horn was going to be good from the day he stepped foot on campus. Uh, everybody thought he was going to be, you know, pretty special. But, you know, for guys like that, you know, you, you like it. Shy Smith, Bobby Bentley recruited him in the class of 2017 out of Union County High School. He had offers, but a lot of those offers, people kind of backed off because of his size. Uh, and all he did was come to Carolina and produce and get better every year. And by the time it was his time to be the guy, he, he stepped up and was the guy. I mean, say what you want about last year's team. I don't think you get many complaints about Shy Smith. Uh, and he's fast and he can make catches. And he ran 4-4-3 at Pro Day. Uh, that's fast for a guy that size. Uh, and so, look, I, I think that um, – I think that uh, – you know, that would be a good thing. And, and you kind of look, uh, let's say it is Shy Smith, and, you know, Shy Smith will probably get drafted. Uh, that would be the one, two, three, four, six, seventh, seventh since Hayden Hurst, the Hayden Hurst draft. So that was the last three drafts. The seventh South Carolina prospect that went to the University of South Carolina to get drafted. Um, so, and like I said, the other two are from Georgia. They would join DJ Wanham. And then way back when Hayden Hurst was from Florida. So I think it's always pretty positive when you can recruit guys from your state and they end up being going, you know, future NFL guys. Uh, and that's a positive thing. And, and there'll probably be more, you know, from South Carolina that come through that end up being pros. Uh, and what's interesting about it is outside of Shy Smith, Brian Edwards, Javon Kinlaw, you know, those three guys, Brunson, TJ Brunson, Debo Samuel, Rashad Fenton, and Dennis Daly, all been three star players. So I've had this theory for a while that South Carolina players' prospects these days are a little underrated because you don't have the analyst foot traffic in the state. Uh, it's almost an afterthought. I think a lot of with, with Clemson's dominance and I mean, this is common. This is not a bias or anything, uh, but with Clemson's dominance and they're one of the best programs in college football right now, if they don't offer a guy within their small state, you know, for some reason, it's a psychological red flag. Um, and it shouldn't be, but it is because there's a long history of guys Clemson has not offered even before they were a great program. Uh, that ended up going on and having successful careers at South Carolina uh, or at um, or uh, you know elsewhere. So that's kind of the deal there. Um, all right, so draft coming up. Gamecocks will probably have a good day. That's always positive uh, as far as you know people recruits looking at your school uh, all that good stuff and it's going to see the numbers come back too because man you know that year Hurst got drafted in the first round that was the 2018 draft there was nobody else drafted the next year Samuel Fenton and Daly and then last year you had Kinlaw Edwards Wanham and Brunson so those numbers have gone up uh, as, as we've moved forward but uh, yeah you know Shy Smith and, and you know you don't know uh, Izzy McQuamu, I think somebody will probably take a chance on him. I think it's probably going to be later round, just to be honest, because uh, he's still a developmental guy. He's not a guy that's 
proven it down in and down out, but he has enough in the in the tool bag, so to speak, or the tool chest. Tool bag kind of sounds weird, uh, you know, to make things happen. Uh, and so I, I could definitely see, you know, him getting drafted as well. So four, maybe five. Uh, but Ernest Jones certainly, you know, has shot up some draft boards. And it was good to see Shy Smith right there as well. Um, recruiting news and lots of speculation. This is not going to turn out in the Gamecocks' favor. But Mike Woods, a wide receiver from Arkansas, very productive guy, uh, had a really good year last year against a brutal schedule at Arkansas, you know, with Felipe Franks and those guys. Franks had a better year last year. I, I give him a hard time, but he had a, a much better year at Arkansas than he did at Florida. Um, you know, over 600 yards receiving, five touchdowns. Announced, surprisingly, after the spring game, he's going to graduate transfer. Um a lot of speculation about South Carolina because of his relationship with Justin Stepp. Justin had him committed at SMU. This kid's from Texas. Uh, but Oklahoma's also pretty confident. Uh, and then some Texas A&M buzz is out there as well. So I'm not sure. I don't know. With a Texas kid, you got Oklahoma and A&M. It's sort of some proven, you know, proven programs that have been winning versus South Carolina, which is – in a transition year, you know, you just don't know. Now, I never underestimate Justin Stepp and the relationship factor because uh, he's one of the best there is. But uh, that would be a big deal if South Carolina could get him. Heck, I think it would be a big deal for Oklahoma or A&M to get him. I think he's a really, really good player. But that's something we'll continue to monitor. Uh, I think when it ha- – because it happened, it was such a surprise because it's, the timing sort of weird – I think the uh, you know the the initial opinion that oh he's going to South Carolina to play for Step uh, was probably valid and legit, but uh, you know th- then you kind of look at it and you're like well if Oklahoma's involved and A&M's involved this kid's from Texas uh, you know one of those things it's uh, you never know so we'll see kind of um, kind of what happens there moving forward. Uh, mentioned baseball. Don't forget Thursday night. You know we'll talk more about that uh, in depth. Number one. Or speaking of Arkansas, the number one Razorbacks are coming to town. And uh, you know I mentioned yesterday that they expanded the capacity of the stadium. My understanding is those tickets are going fast if they haven't already gone. Uh, and so we'll see kind of what happens. Uh, what happens there with the crowd. Uh, again, I'll I'll reiterate that I hope they don't drown out the hecklers because I think the hecklers have been been working pretty well. I think they've been doing their job. Uh, if you just look at the reaction of the two SEC teams that have come in to Founders Park, visual vi- uh, visible frustration and you know pissed offedness, I guess you could say, on the part of the Florida Gators and Missouri Tigers. So yeah, we'll see kind of what. Uh, kind of what happens um all right so spring game coming up talked about recruiting let's get to the mailbag because like i said it's going to be a kind of a shorter version here because at the top of the hour i have to get on a monthly conference call you got to love those and and these these are good because they're they're kind of related to the big spur.com 24 7 sports and it's you know it's just three of us four of us and you know we kind of just 
breeze through it and certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I was thinking about in general conference calls today and, you know, I've worked in all kinds of environments, you know, now I work from, you know, homes, you know, from a couple different places, not in an office environment and, and I enjoy it, but I also enjoyed the office and sometimes I miss it. And who knows, I may be back in an office someday. But I just started thinking about certain conference calls. Uh, and I'm, I know those of you that, that work with this type of stuff can kind of relate because you, you get through them and, you know, sometimes they just drag and drag and drag and people are just, you know, you get the meat, you know, it's like you're eating and, and you get the meat and potatoes of the whole thing. But then, you know, people keep wanting to feed you dessert and sides and it's just like, <laughs> and you're done with some, I mean, you know, you're not hungry anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the person that asked the dumb questions on the conference call that like, you know, the person leading it went over it clearly and concisely. And if you'd have just written it down, you would know. Uh, and, and then, you know, there's that guy or gal that always is going to poke up. Hey, what about this and this and this that, you know, they went over 30 minutes ago uh, and you got to go to the bathroom or, you know, you, you got some work you got to do, finish up at your dad. I mean, it's just, it gets ridiculous. So I was just thinking about conference calls today and how uh, sometimes pointless they are and tough they are, especially when you open up the floor. My favorite conference calls are those where everybody just puts everything on mute and listens. Now, oh, the, now the worst people besides the question askers are the people that don't put their phone on mute, right? And they're in the car, and it's like you, you, you hear the engine going, and you hear, like, people blowing the horn. Um, thank God it was Zoom these days. You can, like, mute people, you know, automatically. But, you know, I've been on them before where some just complete, you know, socially uh, awkward, clueless moron, for lack of a better term, is just sitting there, you know, with his iPhone, you know, not on mute in the car, just like, you know, and I'm like, man, come on. <laughs> and usually it, 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 usually the people that end up doing it, I never found out who it was. I hope it wasn't my friend or God forbid me, but I'm, I'm kind of paranoid about that. You know, usually you know, the, the person that ends up getting caught with that, somebody that doesn't even really need to be on it. Like it doesn't really, this conference call doesn't really affect their lives or what they have to do work-wise or anyway. So it's just kind of, kind of weird. Um, state of Alabama passed the name image likeness law. Uh, Kay Ivey, the governor there, signed it into law. My understanding is, you know, South Carolina has several options for that too. Uh, we were talking about that today in Tuscaloosa, where I do a, a Tuscaloosa radio spot at 8:30 Eastern on Tide 100.9. For those of you that ever want to tune in, we it's interesting because we we they we get to some Gamecock stuff, but we also talk you know, big picture NCAA football, basketball, whatever, uh, with Barry Sanderson and Wimp Sanderson. And it's uh, it's always a nice visit. So we were talking about that today. Uh, and it's going to be interesting. I don't think, you know, with these laws, I, you know, once the NCAA passes the legislation and legalizes it or whatever uh, and has rules and their plan, I, I don't know that the state laws are going to matter so much but I think these state laws are just in case. And, and I think that the sooner that it happens with the state laws, the, the more of an advantage that's going to be 
because then you could be out in the open with it because state law does supersede um, NCAA rules, you know, in a lot of ways. And, and so if they're going to drag their feet, they're going to do it. So hopefully, you know, I know the University of South Carolina has, has partnered with a, a very good firm uh, along with Texas and LSU to kind of, you know, handle that part of it. And, and I, I think that, you know, right now the Gamecocks are, you know, in pretty good shape, you know, and Clemson too, as far as, you know, maximizing that. It's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, with all that uh, because that's uh, that's a new newfound territory, my guess is, uh, is that you're going to end up seeing, you know, that the value in a lot of ways. I mean, I read the other day there, there was some cockamamie um, study from Ohio State, I think, that a five-star recruit was worth $650,000. Um, and I say cockamamie, I'd, I'd have to dig in to see, like, what all their – so are you counting – yeah, because I know the clowny commitment was worth, you know, money in terms of publicity and, and things like that. But this kind of broke it down with wins and, and and things like that. So so if you're talking about the publicity you get, you know, when a kid commits, like for your school, like through the, uh, you know, the recruiting media or the regular media, I, I get that, you know, because that's uh, – if it's worth it, it's worth it. Uh, this kind of went in a different direction, trying to say that, you know, those help you win. Therefore, uh, you know, they kind of broke it down into a different deal. And I, I don't, I don't think that's accurate because, you know, only 21% of the five stars that have signed the last few years that have not gone to Alabama get drafted in the first round, you know, so, so that doesn't, that means there are five stars that bust. So, how do you determine that value to the institution? So it's, it's going to be interesting to see. My guess is we're going to end up finding out that the value of the brand of the school carries a lot more weight than the, the individual brand of a player. Now, and I think as long as people understand that and you don't have people out here clamoring for half the revenue and because they're the ones that play or whatever, that. It's a different thing. We can keep in mind too, college football is voluntary. All right. It's a voluntary activity. You do not have to play. Nobody's forcing you to play, you know, college football uh, or football in general. You know, it's a choice. Uh, and, and so that's the number one thing um, as far as that goes. But the, the, the other good thing about it, though, is, is that I think some of these guys are going to end up making a significant amount of money just on their own from their own branding. Um, and I think it's going to, a lot of, some of it's going to come from the media because, you know, we're getting to the stage now with, with content and things like that. People aren't afraid to plop down a couple dollars for content. Look at all the streaming and stuff like that. Um, you know, you have an ocean of viewers on YouTube. Uh, and, and now if a kid has a cooking show and I said, I think I mentioned this, like, like, let's say one of the players at Carolina likes to cook and uh, he has a cooking show and he gets in his dorm, sets up the cameras, you know, and, and he gets there and, and, and it's, it's really good and it's tasty and uh, it's wildly popular. You know, Gamecock fans are like, man, I got to check out so-and-so's cooking show because it looks good and he's a player and we love it and all that. Well, you can't monetize that on YouTube if it's illegal, 
if you're that guy. And 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 things like that, I think, are just fundamentally stupid and wrong. Because, you know, if you're on theater scholarship at South Carolina uh, and you, you do a weekly show on YouTube and you monetize it, you're going to get that money. Um, anything else. So I, I think that's where the NCAA has, has skewed in the wrong direction as far as amateurism goes. You know, nobody's, you know, if you have a cook or, or even if, if you have a cooking show or even if you just go on there and answer questions about football, you know, on your YouTube page or, or life or whatever, you know, that, that really has nothing to do with being an amateur athlete or not. Really, I mean, it's just like not, uh, you know, that, that, that doesn't do anything for your amateurism. I, I don't think endorsements do either. You know, I don't think that if if you're a player and, and you give your time back to have a youth football camp and you're out there coaching kids in July and in South Carolina and sweating in the sun and all that, and you charge them 25, 35 bucks and, and, you know, you pay out your coaches and your expenses and you have a little business deal there. I don't think that's a problem at all. Uh, I think it's America. That's capitalism, man. I mean, what are we, what are we doing? Um, now I do have the concerns, you know, that if you're going to give them a percentage of the Jersey sales and stuff like that, that you're going to have, you know, somebody with oil money out in Texas is commits to buying a million jerseys for a five-star recruit. And, you know, if you're getting $2 a jersey, that's a lot. Um, and so I think it's going to really be interesting. I think there's really some positive things that can come out of it uh, in terms of, you know, branding, content, uh, for you guys, the fan access to players, uh, the information flow, um, you know, things like, you know, signing autographs and stuff. I think that's – I think it's cool if these guys are going to get some money for it. I mean, why not? And I think that's good for fans because, you know, who wouldn't have wanted a Jadevi and Clowney sign photo or whatever? And I'm sure you got it on, on fan day or whatever. But, you know, what's wrong with J.D. making a little money off that? Because – when he gets, you know, once these guys declare, that's one of the first things they're doing. They're getting with an organization, signing things and selling them. I mean, because that's that's pretty good money right there. So um, I, I think there, there are a bunch of positive things. I think South Carolina um, uh, can compete with, with just about anybody in that, that category um, as far as exposure and brand and things like that. And it's uh, – there are some positive things, but then there are some some worries. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, uh, especially when it comes to booster activity, <laughs> so to speak. All right, enough of name, image, likeness. I just uh, rolled through that. So, okay, mailbag. Two ways to get in the mailbag, folks. The first way is to tweet to at the Big Spur Pod, and I'm retweeting. I usually retweet the questions. Uh, obviously maybe I should put something this is this is answered today but I don't know um so bullheaded says was looking at past recruiting classes and remembered South Carolina was close to signing Jair Alexander and Damon Arnett do you think if they'd signed those two it would have pushed them to 10 or 11 wins 
in 2017. I mean, two future first round picks and only one blowout loss that year. I don't know. You never know. Uh, I, and actually, it's crazy you mentioned that because I was thinking I was doing some drafts, you know, the NFL draft research. I was thinking about that because I looked and I saw Arnett was in the first round last year. Keep in mind, Damon Arnett had a really good senior year, but he sort of got picked on a little bit before. Uh, Jair Alexander was a stud from the beginning. And if we remember, like, Arnett and Alexander were not the top guys in that – Mark Fields, who played at Clemson and, you know, started some, but was really never like that five-star type of guy, you'd think. Mark Fields was the guy that everybody wanted, and he was committed for a while too. Uh, and then they got Rashad Fenton late. So that, that 2015 defensive bass class, Grady Brown and Whammy, actually did a pretty good job of, of putting it together. Um, kind of wish they'd have – because I, I, I think they just sort of let Alexander walk. Um, kind of wish maybe they'd ask him, you know, come after him a little harder and said, hey, because he was Fields' friend and – Seemed like a throw-in, but he ended up being better than all of them. But uh, do I think it would have pushed Carolina to 10 or 11 wins in 2017? I I don't know because the secondary really – in the games they lost, the secondary was not the issue. Um, The offense was, just quite frankly. I mean, you think about the offense going into turtle mode against Kentucky – uh, struggling to score 20 against Louisiana Tech. Uh, turtle mode way too early against A&M and blew a 10-point lead on the road. Uh, and then they just could, they could go nowhere against Clemson. Uh, while at the same time in that Clemson game, uh, Carolina's defense played the most undisciplined, out-of-control type of game that they played all year. That was a pretty disciplined defensive unit. So I, I don't know that it – but, but then you never know. I mean, so on the other hand, what if in that A&M game, you know, 17-7 and you punt and Kellen Mond throws it and Alexander picks it off and scores a pick six. I mean, then you're up 24-7 to and you probably win out in College Station. So maybe, you know, maybe. But I, I that secondary that year was not was not bad. I mean, and I don't think that was the the big issue that year. You know, Jamarcus King and those guys. Certainly, you'd have loved to have had them though. And you know, like I said, you, you never know. I mean, that 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 team that year had no problem getting turn problems getting turnovers. But hey, you get a few more. You know, maybe those. You know, the closer games that they lost, Kentucky and A and M come to mind. And um, who else they lose to? Kentucky. Oh, Georgia. 24 to 10. Yeah, you know, you know, I guess Georgia maybe. Maybe they get some turnovers and and do that. But uh yeah, that's that's something else when you think about that class that had well, Spurrier's last class. It had Arden Key, Damon Arnett, Jahir Alexander, all committed at one point. Mark Fields was committed. Um I, I think that last staff. After the 2014 season they had where they just looked at the defense or like, we don't have any players, really did a pretty good job going and getting players. The problem was they couldn't – that 2015 season, they couldn't coach them up at all and get them ready. I mean, 
I saw Deke Adams. Deke Adams and Kirk Bakken were probably two guys they should have replaced. Uh, left Whammy in the secondary, secondary coach, let Hope bring in his guys. You know, get get the guys like the, you know, the newcomers on the D-line ready. And, you know, if Spurrier hadn't made the two or three more years comment, maybe they maybe they keep all those guys in the secondary plus Arden Key and who knows, maybe we're talking about the Sean Elliott era right now at South Carolina. Um, a lot of what-ifs there. But that 2015 class, if you, if you think about it, they actually did a pretty good job, you know, maybe say it's too little too late, but pretty good job trying to get guys and rebuild it. And quite frankly, for a while, they were in pretty good shape. Thank you, Bullheaded. Uh, Heath says, JC, this is also off at the Big Spur Pod. So tweet to at the Big Spur Pod if you want to get on the mailbag or inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com is the email address. JC, is it realistic to expect Clayton Wright to White to trot out a better D out there than what we had last year? We're going to be missing a lot of players from the two deep from last year. If our D is better, does that point to Muschamp not being a good D coordinator any longer? No, I think it just points to Muschamp and Travars Robinson having a terrible year last year. Um, I'm not going to sit there and say Will Muschamp will never coordinate a good defense again. I, I will say I think the kids last year had a lot of and, – and I think this was something that happened at a lot of schools defensively, a lot of problems with the nuances of the scheme and getting out there and really playing well. A lot of defenses played bad uh, across college football. South Carolina was historically bad. Um, you know, you say that about the players they lost, but I think you also have to look at what they have coming back. Obviously, the secondary uh, is a concern because you lose, you know, a first-round pick. And uh, Jamie Robinson is going to be a top three-round pick at Florida State, you know, from what I'm told down there. They love him. John Dixon has a chance to play in the NFL. You lost him. Uh, and then McWamu. But you have to understand, too, that was a terrible secondary. I mean, that, that, as a group, they were awful, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, the one game everybody threw at J.C. Horn, they won. But other than that, the rest of those guys did not have their best seasons at all. Um, and so, you know, so, so, so I'm not going to say that either. I, I think that when when you look at it, you know, are they going to are they going to miss Ernest Jones? Absolutely. You know, depending on who ends up being the Mike linebacker, uh, they're obviously going to miss J.C. Horn, Jamie Robinson, John Dixon. Um, but somebody's got to step up, and, and and you know, teams lose players and, and all that. And I think too, with as bad as a team as they played last year, it's not going to be that hard to have a better defense this season. Uh, and from what I'm told, too, the players are a lot more comfortable with the scheme in terms of learning it and, and, and enjoying playing in it. Um, you know, I, and, and I think, heck, Will Muschamp worked for Nick Saban and all that, and he's an NFL guy, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, although he's coaching college, but he likes the, the concepts and stuff from up there. And you know, he's going to run a pretty – Pretty complicated defense. I mean, that, that's just kind of how it is. And you heard him say it himself over and over. We put a lot on our Mike linebacker, put a lot on our safeties, and they do. Uh, and so that's uh, 
That's the deal. So, uh, and this defense, I think, is more of a college defense. It's more the scheme itself is a lot more like Ellis Johnson's than than uh, Will Muschamp's. It's probably a lot more like Charlie Strong's, if you want to get right down to it. Not that not that they're going to run a three three five like like Charlie did at Carolina, but later in his career at Florida and elsewhere, Strong did you know some more four man front type of thing with some some more stand up guys and stuff like that. So. That's the deal there. So, I, you know, your question has a lot of assumptions, and I, I would not assume any of it <laughs> um, right now just because of how bad last year was, you know, because you don't know if Will Muschamp – I mean, what if Will Muschamp goes and coaches in the NFL? There's a reason his guys play well when they get to the NFL because they're used to the complicated defense and reading the keys. And so what if he goes to the NFL – when they have the best defense in the league, you know, we can't sit there and say he's no longer a good D coordinator, you know, or if he goes to Alabama where you got players or something like that. So that's that's my take there. Heath, appreciate the tweet. Mitchell says, JC, I have a simple question for you. Do you think in the next eight decades prior to the year 3000 – Um. I think you're thinking 2100, Mitchell. The year 3000, I think, would be a little more than eight decades. So I'm doing the math, right? And barring serious advancements in medical science, which could happen, I don't know that I'm going to live to be 124. Hope so. But uh, the year 3000, I think, would put me at like 900 or over 1,000 years old because I was born in 76. So 2100, that's okay. We all make that same mistake, right? Uh, I've made it before. Will South Carolina win a national championship or SEC championship? Personally, as bad as Carolina's history has been, and with now I'm pretty optimistic I'll see the Gamecocks achieve this height in my lifetime. I can guarantee you when Carolina achieves this, the celebration and coverage is going to be so massive. Be similar to the Chicago Cubs snapping their 108-year championship drought. Thanks for all you do, Mitchell. Yeah, I mean, look at the baseball titles. Um, you know, at the time, Carolina won the 2010 baseball title. They won one national title in women's track in 02, I think, 03, 02. Uh, so that was a huge deal. I mean, look at the look at the celebrations. Uh, for the women's basketball, the celebration for the women's basketball national title. So, yeah, you win a football national title at South Carolina, you know, it's going to be pretty – I mean, you know, Clemson obviously is celebrated there. It's pretty big. Uh, but Carolina doing it would be would be something else. And, I, and I'll say this, I you know, I would love to see South Carolina win a national championship in my lifetime. And – as as mediocre as the entire lifespan of the program overall has been, and as rough as the last five years have been, you know, it's not like they hadn't come close in some years. And you have to look at it like that, that, you know, when everybody talks about there's no hope, well, there has been hope. It's, it's not consistent. But every now and then, you know, um, you look at 1984, like the Patrick Davis song says, if we just beat Navy, we'd want it all for sure. They win that Navy game. I think they're playing, you know, 
in the Orange Bowl against somebody for the national title, Nebraska or whoever. Keep in mind, BYU won the national title in 1984 with a 12-0 record because there just wasn't – you know, there wasn't anybody else. They beat a 6-5 and five Michigan team in the Holiday Bowl to do it. And so that that's one year, and then I'll continue to, to claim 2013 uh, as another because you don't lose to that bad Tennessee team, and that's a bad Tennessee team. It's Butch Jones' first year in Knoxville. You know, you go beat Missouri the next week. You win the East. Uh, Auburn lose, beats Alabama on the kick six. Alabama's – I don't know that that South Carolina team beats that Alabama team in 2013. Uh, I think the 2012 Carolina team against Bama would have been a little more interesting, but 2013 – but as much as, you know, keep in mind, too, Auburn's D coordinator was Ellis Johnson. And keep in mind, you know, Carolina still has Clowney on the defense, Vic Hampton and some of those guys. And the defense at that point was playing better. You know, does, does South Carolina outscore Auburn at the Dome? Or I think they've got a better shot at beating them than that Missouri team did that was making its first appearance. And so then Michigan State beats Ohio State. The stars just align, and Auburn, you know, goes to the the Rose Bowl to play Florida State for the national title. It would have been Steve Spurrier against Florida State in the Rose Bowl for all the titles. So, you know, there you have it. Um, shoot, how many years is that? At 30, 29 years later, the Gamecocks have a window. Uh, and that's the national. I, I think as far as the SEC goes – the, the problem is those SEC East that they did not win, and in a lot of ways through no fault of their own. I mean, there was a year I think they went undefeated in the SEC East and you know, beat everybody in, in, the, in the division and did not go to the Dome. Um, you know, it was their West, the West draw and schedule and stuff like that because they, they took care of business, you know, uh, in 2011 and 2012 specifically. Um, Although 2012, that Florida team was tied for up there. So, anyway, you know, you you look at it, and uh, I think that those were costly because you you look back, and if things had just one little thing had bounced Carolina's way from 2011 to all the way to 14, that seven and six team doesn't blow those three games, they win the SEC East. And, And if you're looking at five straight divisions, Obviously, at some point in there, you probably have a good shot at winning. You know, I don't know. Do they beat – how competitive are they against 2011 LSU, 2012 Bama? I don't know. I know 2012 Bama was a play away from losing to 2012 Georgia, which lost to Carolina 35-7. So, if you want to get right down to that. Uh, but those were costly. Um, and here's the other bottom line. It's been 57 years since a team other than the big six in the league has won the SEC in football. That was 1963 Ole Miss. Ole Miss won three out of four in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, In 1976, Kentucky claimed a co-championship two years after the fact. And they were – that was a really good Wildcats team back then. Other than that – Nada. The teams that have won it are Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, LSU, Bama, and Auburn, the big six. 
Uh, now, here's what gives you hope. Florida did not win their first national or SEC title until 1991. They had one in 84 that they won. But they had to vacate it because of cheating and all that. You know, so so the Gators kind of a – it's a little bit similar. You know, you, you look at their history pre-Spurrier and – you know, pre-Spurrier as a coach, and, and they had him as the Heisman winner, you know, one Heisman trophy, uh, one good year in 1984, you know. Uh, Florida, the state of Florida at the time is kind of an emerging state where people are moving to, same as South Carolina now. Um, so you don't know. I mean, obviously the dynamics uh, in Florida are kind of similar because you, you also had Florida State and Miami in the same state really good um but you know you sort of look at florida and you think well you know they haven't always been great either and you know it just takes a little bit of magic but you know yeah look 57 years is a long time it's longer than i've been on this earth and um you know nobody's done it you know not a mississippi state not an old miss uh not either one of the new guys a&m uh, or, or Missouri, you know, not Kentucky, not Vandy, not Arkansas. Arkansas's played for it three times. But, you know, if you're South Carolina, you, you just hope. And I, and I, I don't believe – I don't believe this happened. I mean, you know, losing seasons continue to pile up. You're going to start to think this. But I, I'm not going to say South Carolina missed its window under Spurrier. I'm, I'm going to say that they got – to a next level type of thing, um, you know, got up to that next level. And then, so there's still another level to go. Mitchell, thank you for your question. Uh, Isaiah says, JC, love the podcast. Literally check my podcast app every day to see if you have a new episode. My question is, what kind of impact do you see to and Joyner having this year? And what do you expect from Zach Pickens? Uh, with Pickens, I, I expect him to be really good. I think, I think he has been good. Uh, I think he'll take a step this year. Uh, I think that if you kind of look at like Christian Wilkins at Clemson, if it hadn't been for the offensive plays where they put him in, you know, his plight sort of reminds me a little bit of Zach's, you know, a guy that you looked and was all world and great and Kyle high school. And, you know, you, you just want a little bit more production, you know, sometimes you don't get, the super duper production out of him. Um, and that's kind of how I, I see Zach's first two years because they could have easily put Zach in on offense and thrown it to him or given it to him or whatever. And then everybody's talking about him. Um, and it's hard to sit there and really discern a lot of times when a defensive tackle's not blowing up the backfield every play that, that he's playing good or bad because a lot of times his deal is to engage the, the guard. Uh, and keep him off the linebacker so the linebacker can make the play and all that. Uh, so I, I've got high expectations for Zach Pickens this year. I'm not going to put a ceiling on it or a floor on it. I'm not going to say if he's not second team all SEC, he's, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not going to sit there and, and, and say he's going to be no better than this. I, I, I just have, I have high expectations for him. Uh, as far as Joyner goes, I would say the feedback I've been getting from him about him from practice has been a pleasant surprise. Uh, I think, you know, when you look at the, some of the public comments about how he's going to be used, they hit the nail on the head. Wildcat, 
hand it to him from scrimmage, all that. He's going to be better if he can play the receiver position and learn the nuances of that spot, run better routes. Uh, he's going to be a lot better. Um, and, you, you know, you think about Kendarius Tony at, at Florida last year. It was his best year. And DK is not as fast as Kendarius Tony in a straight line. Um, I think he's elusive. He's a little bit different type of player in terms of size and all that. But, you know, you think about how long, you know, it took for Kendarius Tony to be like an every down receiver. He was kind of the wildcat guy for a couple of years. And then, you know, he got better and better and better and better and better. Um, I think now that you got Justin Stepp in there coaching a guy up, uh, I think the fact Joyner has not quit, uh, and I'm not saying quit football, but but said, hey, I can go play, you know, quarterback down the road here in a lesser division and don't have to worry about, you know, developing here and learning all this crap at receiver. Um, the quarterback comes more naturally to him. Uh, he could have just he could have just rolled, you know, and I don't think anybody had been upset with him. Um, and so I think guys like that that have a stick to itiveness have a better shot at succeeding. Um, it's just there, there's a lot of ifs there uh, with him, you know, as far as putting a, a, an exact pinpoint on how good he will be. I will tell you this, you'd rather have the positive feedback you've gotten about him uh, than not. And it was encouraging to me to see, you know, he is a Quandre White returning kickoffs the other day because I think those two guys could make some things happen in that department. Um, and, and, you know, it's impressive that he's been such a good teammate. You know, because I, I think these days you get a high-profile quarterback in and things don't go their way, you know, and, and you watch and it's going to happen moving forward. They're going to be out, you know, going to the next place. Uh, and Joyner hadn't done that. He stuck with it. And, you know, certainly, you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing him Saturday and, and seeing what he can do moving forward. Based on the feedback, again, I've gotten, he's gotten a lot better uh, and, and they've, they think the lights really come on uh, as far as him playing receiver. But, you know, there's a difference in practice and scrimmages and games and stuff like that. All the time we have for today, don't forget I'll be – I don't know what time this is going to be out, but I'm on JB and Goldwater from 1230 to 1.30 uh, on Wednesdays. Uh, if you missed the live stream, which you can get on Twitter and YouTube and everywhere else, uh, you can hit up their podcast uh, and check out all that. Uh, don't forget um, the J.C. and Morgan College Football Podcast. I'm going to continue to tell you, go listen to that interview with Brad Ed, Brad Nessler uh, if you love college football. This is J.C. Sherbert. I am out. Happy hump day, everyone. Holla at you soon.